Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, yeah, as Aaron mentioned, my name is Jonathan Mosier. Uh, my wife Jessica is here with me today, and our two boys, Leo and Harvey, uh, are at their grandparents' house uh, enjoying a weekend with them, and we're enjoying a weekend away. Uh, we love our boys, but we enjoy the time that we get away from them, and it is good to be with you. Um, again, as Aaron mentioned, we've known um, Aaron and Brandon and Hannah for, I want to say about five years. Does that sound about right? Where, there you are. Five years, give or take. I had the opportunity to get to know them a little bit, and and one of the reasons it's so neat to be with you this morning is I remember uh, sitting in Brandon's uh, living room hearing um, hearing him talk about the plans that he and Aaron were making for this church, uh, to hear them talk about their heart and their vision for what a church in this city might look like, to, to see what a church driven by the gospel, informed by the gospel, informed by the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, what that would actually look like. And so now to be here today and to, and to see uh, the fruition of that, to see what God is doing in this city, what God's doing through you and through River City Church, it's an exciting uh, and fun thing, and I'm honored uh, to be here. Uh, we're continuing uh, this morning in the series that you guys have been in, in the book of Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 6. And we're going to be jumping around um, quite a bit as we move through the book, so uh, I'll, I'll just be reading those passages for you, but we're going to begin in Proverbs chapter 6. Um, Proverbs is the book of wisdom. I know you guys have covered all of this before, but it has tremendous value for everyday life. I mean, Proverbs is interesting in that it, it, it focuses first on the nature and the character of God, and therefore, uh, born out of that, the way that God sees us, the way that the, the nature of God and the character of God informs our life, and how then we respond uh, to the work that he's already done. But Proverbs is also an interesting book to preach. It's interesting because it's not like other books where you can just begin in one section and work your way through and you can kind of see what the author is intending to communicate in a particular text and where it stays on theme, but rather the theme is divinely sporadic in its pattern. And that's my way of saying I can't figure out what the pattern is, but I know that God probably has one. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to jump through a handful of different texts addressing a particular topic. Um, but, but as we go into this, I kind of want to set the stage for the things that we're going to address. Because if we don't start out with an understanding of the nature and character of God, the rest of the morning is going to be fruitless uh, in what it is that we discuss. When I was in college, there was a handful of books that were transformative for me, where they, they actually changed my view of theology, of who God is. They changed my understanding of who I am. And one of the books that's near the top of that, lo- that, that list is a book called Knowing God uh, by a man named J.I. Packer. And here's something that he wrote in the opening chapter of that book. He said, Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul." See, Packer is wise to describe those who do not know and recognize the centrality of God as stumbling 
through life. And there are countless people who breathe the air that God designed for their survival, who eat the food that He designed for their sustenance, who engage in the sex that He designed for their satisfaction, and do all of this without any recognition of the God who masterfully wove these things together to point us to Him. They live in ignorance of God and His character and believe that through their own system of right living, they will find meaning and happiness and worth. Those are the people that don't know God, who live irreligious lives. But there's a second group of people where the temptation can be, can be just as deep. And it's those who've developed a system of religion, a system of belief, but they also stumble through life, not out of ignorance or rejection of God, but rather out of a complete misunderstanding of who he is to begin with. They attend churches, and they live outwardly moral lives, and they sing the right songs, and they pray the right prayers, and they raise their hands at just the right point in the song, and outwardly they are doing everything the right way, but in actuality they're living lives of self-reliance and self-focus. And as different outwardly as these two groups may appear, the truth is they have a commonality. And the commonality that they have is they have created a God in their own image. The irreligious through a system created uh, of, of a virtue that they've developed that determines right and wrong based on the whims of culture. And it leads culture to a manic place where it doesn't know what it believes about anything, where the winds of change are constantly moving, where the standards of morality and right and wrong are constantly shifting. And it's the reason why generation after generation, people look back at those who went before them as backwards as having no clue about what is real or true. Unless we would be caught up in that same mentality, would we understand that culturally another generation will look back on us as backwards and foolish. And likewise, for those who are religious, they've constructed a God that is built on half-truths and misunderstandings. A God whose favor can be purchased with right behavior. So the question then is this, why am I talking about all of this? Why, why set the stage with this big discussion of the nature and character of people? And the answer is that because, our, because we understand, to understand our topic, we must see ourselves in light of who God is. And the only way that we can see who God is and understand the character and the nature of God is if we can see the way that God reveals himself in his word. And I would argue that there's probably no better place than to begin that search than to look at the book of Proverbs, to begin to see what it is that God himself cares about. Because in the pages of the book of Proverbs, he explicitly tells us the things with which he's concerned. And that brings us to Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And what's fascinating about this passage is that God is going out of his way to say, these are the things I hate. In fact, the word he uses is detestable. 
He's saying these things are offensive to my sight. They're offensive to the smell that comes into heaven. When I see these things, I find them objectionable on the face of them. And what's amazing is that in that entire list of things that includes a kind of vicious gossip that tears apart churches and tears apart communities, and in the same passage that that actually mentions murder, he starts off the discussion by saying, I am bothered by haughty eyes. By a proud look. I mean, why in the world does he use that example, haughty eyes, to begin this conversation? Because the eyes are great communicators of intention. We live in an interesting time for a lot of reasons, but among, among the reasons why we live in such an interesting time is that in our lifetime, communication has changed entirely in the way that we interact with it. I mean, for, for many of us, and I would argue without knowing you, that probably for most of us, one of the primary means of communication that we engage in is the text. And I remember the first time I received a text message on my phone, which makes me feel old even though I'm not. But I remember getting a text that first time and going, what, what do I do with this? How do I go to type in the nine key like three times to get that letter? And I just remember going through that whole process. But it's absolutely changed the way that we interact and communicate with other people, but it's also changed the way that we have to communicate. And what I mean by that is this. I remember the first time I encountered this was was several years ago. I had received a text from a friend, and he was suggesting that we get together and mentioning that something that he had done for me. And I remember writing back, thanks, with a period. And I got a phone call shortly later from him, and he said, hey, man, I just want to check and make sure that you're okay. And I said, yeah, I'm fine. What's going on? And he said, well, I just noticed that when you texted back, you said thanks with a period, and it looked angry to me. Like my punctuation looked angry to you. I don't. Know, I don't even know how to process that. And I remember telling Jessica later, going, I, "I don't know how 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 this is going to change things for us, but I imagine it's going to." Apparently, now I have to be concerned about the kind of punctuation I use. I kind of laughed it off. But now here's the thing: like unbeknownst to me, the whole way that I communicate changes because now when I text, I'm the guy that includes the exclamation point to verbally communicate that I'm not angry at someone in a text. Now, why is it we have to do that? Because snippets of text are very poor communicators of intention. But when you see someone face to face, when you look in their eyes as you're having a conversation, it's entirely a different thing. You pick up on the nuance. You pick up on the intention. You pick up on what it is that is driving a person in that moment. Your eyes communicate everything. And the point of this verse is to say that not only are your eyes a reflector of the attitude that's going on in your heart, but your eyes are also the perspective through which you view the world. So not only is the look that you give uh, maybe able to reflect the, the, the idea that you have pride in your heart, but that you are actually looking from a prideful heart, that your view of everything is tainted. The look in your eyes can communicate the pride in your heart. And to some, this might seem like a harsh reaction from God. I mean, again, God, we're talking about a look here. And you're saying this is what makes you angry. This is what actually brings up detestable feelings in your heart. And mentioned in the same breath as murder and vile gossip. I mean, why include something like that? And Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, said it this way. He said, pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe and it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. 
And it is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working, of any lusts whatsoever. It is ready to mix with everything. And nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel or of so dangerous consequence. And there is no one sin that does so much let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. And I would dare say that for many of us, we probably never thought of pride in these kind of strong terms. And yet Proverbs is rife with this language. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. I mean, just think about that language. In this passage, God himself is saying, not only do I hate the attitude of pride, and not only do I hate actions that reflect a heart of pride, but I hate the person who is proud. I mean, it's pretty rare that we see that kind of a glimpse into the nature of God where we're shown this is the kind of hatred that God has towards this attitude. Proverbs twenty six twelve. do you see a person who is wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. And if you've been paying attention throughout this series, you know that Proverbs has very few good things to say about the fool. And yet in chapter 26, the author is saying there is more hope for that fool than for the proud person. I mean, imagine, imagine what it must mean for the Lord to hate something. I mean, this isn't some petty, reactionary payback. This is a holy, righteously informed anger. But the very same pride that incites that kind of a response from God is surreptitious in our own lives. It sneaks in undetected. It's hard to put our finger on. It's hard to recognize in ourselves. And it is so easy for us to rationalize. So what does pride look like? I'm going to give you four descriptions. There are certainly more than that. But we see one definition in Proverbs 11, verse 12, which says this, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense But the one who has understanding holds their tongue. So the first point is this. Pride puts down others. I was trying to think of a way to exemplify it. And the only only way that I could think about this is the way that children interact. And if you've ever seen kids interact with one another, if you've ever seen the way that they can talk to one another, at a very young age, what you'll see is that kids begin to make up rules for other kids to abide by. Like, you're not allowed to do that. You shouldn't do that. I'm telling you, you can't do that. And kids begin to be the makers of rules, probably because they mimic us as parents, right? But, but, but they begin to make those rules for other people. And then when children begin to violate the rules that they have made, then they begin to look down on those other kids and they begin to tattle and they begin to talk bad about them. And maybe they begin even to gossip about them to their friends or say mean things about them. At the earliest of ages, you can begin to see this kind of pride form. Because pride not only has to exist in and of itself, proud of what I've accomplished in some sort of a self-satisfactory way, but, it, but a, a sinful pride, when it takes root, also dominates our hearts to the point where we have to put others down in order to make ourselves look better. So aside from this being terrible manners, why is this a big deal? 
Because pride is never content with having something. It always wants to have something more than someone else. So how does this play out in your life and mine? I mean, for some, it might be the guy who's so motivated by work that he works his way up the company, he gets the promotion, he gets the raise, he gets the corner office, he gets the vacation time, he gets the pay bump, he gets all of these benefits, maybe even to the point where he becomes the president of his company. He has accomplished everything he set out to do, only to realize upon receiving that promotion that there are far bigger companies that are far more expensive laying out there, taunting him. I mean, for some, it's our kids. We see the kids that our schools go to or the way that they behave as a marker of success. We begin to live vicariously through them. For others, it's their looks. I want to be perceived a certain way. I want people to view me as successful. I want them to see me as beautiful. I want, to see, want, 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 to see, I want people to see me as one who is worthy. But not only is pride something that has to put down others, but pride uses self-satisfaction to withhold true contentedness. Pride, in many ways, is a demonstration of the self-salvation project that we all naturally pursue. See, the truth is, regardless of where you are in this room, and I don't know you well enough to know that, so for some of you, you know Christ and maybe have known him for years, maybe he's done a marvelous work in your heart. For some of you, you're wrestling with what it is that you believe about God. You, maybe you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior, but that's as far as you've gotten. And maybe some of you in here are wrestling with whether or not you believe a God even exists. Is he even real? And the truth of the matter is that regardless of where you find yourself this morning, we are all driven by a self-salvation project. We want to justify our existence, our meaning, our worth, our value. What is it that my identity is rooted in in this world? We're all striving for spiritual success in some way or another. And we're trying to find meaning either through breaking the rules, through our irreligion, through making our own way and achieving our own success, or through keeping the rules through accomplishing the religion that we've set out to accomplish. But here is the false promise of pride, because pride is always a cheat. Pride works by finding someone that we think we are better than, or by degrading someone else, and through that, beginning to try to establish our own worth. And unchecked pride always gets to the point of sitting on the throne of our life. So one author said it this way, and I'd ask you to listen. This is a lengthy quote, but I think it's so helpful in our understanding of this topic. One author said it this way. He said, pride in the religious sense is the arrogant refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for oneself. In the vivid language of the Bible, pride is puffing yourself up in God's face. Pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on one's own resources. Never does pride want to pray for strength. Never does it want to ask for grace, plead for mercy, or give thanks to God. Pride is the grand illusion, the fantasy of fantasies, the cosmic put-on. The fantasy that we can make it as little gods leaves us empty at the center. Once we decide we have to make it on our own, we are attacked by the demons of fear and anxiety. We are worried that we cannot keep our balance as long as we carry no more inside our empty heart than what we can put there. We suspect that we lack the power to become what our pride makes us think we are. 
So we learn to swagger, to bluff, to use symbols to cover up our fears that we lack substance. We force other people to act as buttresses for the shaky ego that pride created by emptying our soul of God. In the words of Scripture, we become arrogant. And that leads us to the third point, that pride is the sin behind all other sins. Proverbs 21, verse 4. Listen to these words. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produce sin. And he's just given us the formula for how sin gets a foothold in our life. He says, where does sin come from? Where does all sin begin in the heart of mankind? Where is all sin planted in our hearts? And from that point spring out, it all starts with pride. So think about this. And you can apply your own context, but I'll give you a few examples. So think about anger. I mean, for some of you like me, this is, your, this is one of your many struggles. So by nature, I'm a quick-tempered person. I can get angry at the drop of a hat. Without the help of God, that's the way I would live my life, day in and day out. Well, where does that anger come from? See, anger comes from wanting to make someone else pay because we think we've deserved better. Anger comes because in some sense or another, we believe we have been mistreated, and therefore, in order to set things right in this world, we have to be the ones who are the enforcers who fix the problem. Where does envy come from? Envy envy comes from that point in our lives when we don't want anyone else to appear better than us. We don't like the fact that our neighbors have more than we do. We We don't like the fact that family members have accomplished or achieved more than we do. We don't like the fact that a friend has a family that's more intact and solid than our family. And so envy begins to root up within us. Well, what's the root basis of all of that? It's pride. I want to look better. Bitterness. We want to have something to hold over somebody else's head. We want that thing that we can constantly remind ourselves is what makes us better than them. And even think about things like sexual sin. In the moment when we choose sexual sin, we are presuming that we know better than the God of the universe, but we know better than our creator how we are designed to find happiness. Is there anything more prideful in the heart of humankind? See, beneath all of these things is pride, and pride is an empty promise in which you rely on your own abilities and reject the person and the power of God Almighty. It is, in the truest sense, a declaration of war against the love and mercy and grace of an Almighty God. Choosing instead to try and earn and gain what only God Himself can give us. And that leads to the fourth definition pride is taking credit. For what God has done. And think about the things that we take pride in. The way that you're wired. Your intelligence. The fact that you may be smarter than somebody else. I'm not saying that you didn't work in some element of your life. Or that you didn't try hard at school or whatever else. But do you realize that at the end of the day. Your intelligence. Your capacity to learn. Your capacity to know and recall. Is ultimately a gift from God himself. 
Maybe your physical beauty. You may work out and you might take care of yourself, but do you realize at the end of the day that you were designed by a creator? That he made you who you are and what you are? Maybe the family, the family name that you carry. And how much did you have to do with the family that you were born into? Acts chapter 17 would say you had nothing to do with that. But that the times and the places in which we live are ordained by God himself. See, virtually anything in our life that we can begin to try to take pride in, where we can try to claim that we are better, that we are worthy, that God owes us something, almost anything in our lives that we could use to make that claim ultimately comes back to the goodness and the graciousness of God to begin with. Everything we have is ultimately a gift from God. So do you begin to see why God hates pride so much? Why he opposes the proud, actively works against the proud? but shows favor to the humble. See, God hates it, and he loves humility because it's his strength that is shown more powerfully in our weakness. And when we begin to live lives that are humble and dependent on God's grace, it's in that moment that we recognize the rightful place of God's rule in our heart rather than trying to treasonously pull it away from him. So here's the problem with this discussion. If we were to end there this morning, what you would walk away thinking is, okay, I have to become more humble. And the problem with that is, try as you might uh, to become more humble in different areas of your life and, to, and to, try to, to try to not focus on yourself. Inevitably, if that was the only thing we took away, at some point you would begin to take pride in your own humility, which has defeated the whole purpose of everything we've talked about this morning. So then what's the answer? How do we begin to combat this? I would argue that we begin to combat this by recognizing the source and life of our identity. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says it this way. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? See, the only way to begin to combat this pride is to recognize that everything we have, from material goods to salvation, comes by the sovereign grace of God alone. And the truth is, it is not hard to look good when we begin to compare ourselves to to other people. It's not hard to find people that are worse than us in various aspects of our life and use them as a foil to make ourselves look good. But the example of Scripture is that we are not to compare ourselves to others. But rather that if you want a point of comparison, look to Jesus. I don't know if you remember this story, but but if you remember the moment just before the betrayal of Jesus Christ, he's gathered with his disciples. Uh, They're about to eat an evening meal. This is just before Passover, and they're going to eat this evening meal together. And it would have been tradition in a culture like this uh, to have the most honored guest at the table sitting in a place of prominence, and the person who was at that meal, who was the least prominent, who had the least standing, maybe even a house servant, would go around and begin to wash everyone's feet. It was both a sign of honor and because practically they were living in a time where there was an intensely hot sun in the middle of a desert place, and People were walking around in open-toed sandals along with animals and their feces and all kinds of things. And so it was not only a position of honor, or rather a sign of honor to wash someone's feet, but it was also something polite that you would do when someone would enter your house to have a meal. 
And so if you remember this story, the disciples are all gathered. They're sitting around waiting for the meal to begin, and they're having a discussion. And seemingly out of nowhere, before anybody else can do anything, what you find is Jesus stripping himself to the waist, getting a dish full of water, and bending down on his knees to begin washing the feet of the disciples. Do you remember that story? Now, mind you, this is just before Jesus' betrayal. I mean, this is the man that the disciples had seen feed 5,000 men, along with women and children, using a little boy's lunch. This is the man who they had seen restore sight to someone who is blind. The ability to walk to someone who had never walked before in their life. This is the man who had, who, who had healed a woman who had been an outcast in society and an outcast from her family because of an issue of blood. And just by her faith in Jesus Christ, she found healing just by touching the hem of Jesus Christ's robe. This is Jesus who had walked on water and turned water into wine. And here he is in this moment, putting himself in the position of a servant and washing the feet of men who just hours later would betray him. I mean, think, think about this picture for a moment. This is the embodiment of humility. And the practical question that we need to ask ourselves is, have we put ourselves in the position of being willing to give up our comfort and maybe even to give up the honor that we feel that is due to us to serve and love others? But I would argue still that if we stopped at the example of Jesus Christ and washing the disciples' feet, we would still be falling short of the power that we find to live this kind of humble life. Because this is not where the story ended. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus in that moment when he could have called down the angels of heaven to deliver him, from the persecution that he was experiencing. When he could have opened up the throne room of God for all men to see and fall at the presence of God among them. Instead, took on the form of a servant. And he gave his life. See, Jesus experienced the humiliation, literally the being made humbleness. The humiliation of the cross. So that you could be lifted up in the sight of God. He experienced pain so that you could receive forgiveness. He experienced rejection so that you would be brought in. And since through Jesus' death and resurrection, we who were not worthy of honor, we were brought into the family of God, then therefore we are now free to stop trying to earn our worth from any other means. So rather than having to put other people down in order to make ourselves look better, because we realize that everything we need we already have in Jesus Christ, we can now begin to serve those people. 
Because I don't need to earn my affirmation from you anymore, and I don't need to get anything from you anymore, and I don't need to use you as a foil to make myself better. I can begin to just serve and love. I don't need to put anyone else down because Jesus was put down on my account. In other words, I am free, finally, in Christ from the bonds of pride and achievement and self-salvation. I'm free because everything I need to live this life has been freely given by Jesus. So what I would say is this, if you, like me, struggle with pride, the answer and the reminder of Scripture is to look to Christ. Yes, for the example, of course, but also for the power to live humbly, to realize that God has made you, created you, formed you, wired you to be who you are, that in your brokenness, he saved you and came to the cross and rose again, that we would be brought into his family. And in the reminder to look to the cross, this is the song that came into mind for me this week. It's an old hymn. Many of you will know it. The opening words of that hymn say this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride the cure to the pride of mankind is to see the humility of Jesus Christ on the cross and to see the power and new life that he brings through his resurrection. Will we be reminded this week of that very same power to live in that kind of humility and service one for another? That River City Church would be a demonstration to the city of Dubuque of the power of Christ working in our hearts as we long to live and learn and serve alongside one another and for one another, both believers and neighbors. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the promise of the book of Proverbs. I thank you for, God, what is honestly in this book, a a difficult challenge. God, not an not a fun thing to be reminded of. But God, we thank you that in your mercy and in your love and in your care for us that you would even be willing to offend, to challenge those notions in our lives where we are putting putting the weight of who we want to be, the weight of our identity, the weight of our worth on ourselves or on other people. And God, would you free us from the slavery that that is? God, would you free us from trying to accomplish what you've already accomplished on our behalf? Would you free us from trying to earn what you've freely given? And would you free us from putting the weight and expectation that only you can fulfill on those that are around us? God, I pray that in you and in the gospel that we believe and proclaim that we would find the freedom in being sons and daughters of God to be able to live lives of humility and generosity and service. And so we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.